About 10 years ago, David Brooks, the New York Times author and columnist, uh, wrote a book called The Road to Character. And in the book, David Brooks argues there are two sets of virtues, two contrasting sets of virtues that he wants to tell people about. There are resume virtues and there are eulogy virtues, Brooks says. Resume virtues are those kinds of things that you put on your LinkedIn account. Those are the test scores and accolades that you put down when you're trying to get an academic scholarship to a school. These are the skills and accomplishments that make us hireable. As a culture, Brooks notes, that we spend much of our time pursuing the resume virtues, racking up impressive accomplishments that make for bigger bonuses and bigger salaries. So society prizes resume virtues. And so do we. On the other hand, eulogy virtues are the hidden, often that we think invaluable aspects of character, the things for which we need to be remembered by when we die, but spend little time pursuing while we are alive. Perhaps you recall a scene from Charles Dickens' book, The Christmas Carol. My daughter told me that on the radio already a station is playing Christmas carols. So I'm talking about Christmas Carol this morning from Charles Dickens. Though the phrase wasn't around then, Ebenezer Scrooge's success in life made for an impressive list of resume virtues. He was a self-made man, a wealthy man, an independent man. But after his death, as the gravekeepers and others were dividing up Scrooge's possessions in a humorous but somber way, they're talking about what a miserable person Scrooge actually was. And as he alters the ways that others speak of him, Scrooge sees himself as he really was, bereft of any eulogy virtues at all. Now, at one level, then, the Christmas carol shows us the hollowness, the horror of resume virtues when you come to die. Friends, the things that are on your resume won't matter when you breathe your last breath. Except to make you fodder for a happy hour joke for the friends that you thought you had with Garth Brooks in low places. We pursue resume virtues, David Brooks says, while we neglect the more needful eulogy virtues. A true life tale, if you've read any of the biographies of the Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, you know that after his death, it became aware, uh, obvious, that as brilliant as Jobs was, he was in fact a modern day Ebenezer Scrooge, but without any awakening at the end of his life. It's well documented that as successful as Jobs was, as much as you like that iPhone in your pocket, it was made, as one reviewer says, quote, by a truly terrible person who was deeply, quote, cruel to his oldest daughter, a jerk to business partners and employers while being enabled by his wife and his colleagues. In the end, one reviewer notes, it's hard to say whether his business achievements outweigh his cruelty, but they certainly got more attention in his lifetime because we as a society value resume virtues more than we value eulogy virtues. At one level, Jobs wasn't a modern Scrooge without a happy ending. 
Our society produced that kind of man that we look at as successful, rich with resume virtues, but he found that he was not the man that we needed. His resume virtues were not as important as the eulogy virtues, and when he came to die, what mattered most to him mattered little to everybody else. And the same could be true of any of us this morning. Do you find more value in your resume than in your character? But friends, what we do is not as important as who we are. And for those of us here this morning, followers of the crucified and risen Lord, we add this monumentally important phrase that makes an eternal difference. What's most important is who we are in Christ. When we come to die... All that will finally matter during a eulogy about us is this. Were they, was I, in Christ? This morning we're going to watch a man come to the end of his life, at least from a literary perspective, a king. And while the king could have listed a host of impressive resume virtues that would make us take one look at his resume and then just crumple up ours and throw it in the trash, mine are worth talking about next to his. He focused instead on a different virtue. Virtues that he didn't even earn, but were given to him. And as this truly great man speaks, he shows us the more, most important thing in life, that when you come to die, is this. Was I right with God? Am I ready to die? David shows us how to do both. Would you turn, please, to 2 Samuel 23 in the first half of the Christian Bible? 2 Samuel 23. These final four chapters of the book of Samuel help us understand the story that came before and the story that will come after. We've pointed out the artful arrangement of these final four chapters, 21 to 24, how the two outer chapters of 21 and 24 mirror each other in largely narrative sections, but they frame the inner poetic chapters of 22 and 23. So in chapters 22 and 23, we have two final songs of David. And these two final songs playing on the album of David's life help us understand rightly the whole of King David's life comes down to this. My life is just this. It's a celebration of God's sovereign grace. That's 22 and the beginning of 23. Now, last week we began by looking at a list of warriors at the end of chapter 21 followed by a song of David. Well, today we'll begin looking at, at a song of David for seven verses, followed by a list of warriors, 8 to 39. It's another evidence of, of the lovely literary arrangement of this intersection of the final four chapters. Here's what I mean. On either side of David's final words in 22 and 23, on either side, we have a list of mighty men. It's a regal scene fit for a royal funeral in Westminster Abbey, as David the king flanked by mighty men on both sides, comes to rest. That's the arrangement, the beautiful arrangement of, of chapter 22 and 23. Now this morning, I told Brian I'd do the whole chapter, and I'm not going to do it, and you'll be thankful that I don't do the whole chapter like I did last week. You'll be thankful. You'll be thankful. We're just going to focus on the first seven verses, but I wanted you to see the inner framing of a great king flanked by his mighty men. That's the beautiful picture as this king in a procession comes to his final rest. Well, let's listen first, and the next week, Lord willing, David's mighty men, to David's last will and testament, 
2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 7. Would you read that with me, please? 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 7. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed one of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And here's the oracle. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, David says. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my household stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered, ordained in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help, all my salvation and my desire? But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken hold of with the hand. But the man who touches the thorns has to arm himself with an iron rod, the shaft of a spear, and they're utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when we hear that these are the last words of David, these aren't the last words that he speaks. You can go to two kings for that. But what we should hear is this is his last will and testament, which anybody can write before he dies. So this is his last will and testament before he passes. What David sang about in 51 verses in chapter 22, now he's going to put down the seven verses in these opening verses. And in both songs, in 22 and 23, David wants you to see that his life, that Israel's history, owes everything to God's grace. Now, as we listen to his last will and testament of God's grace, I want you to notice four things. I want you to hear David talk about his Humble beginnings and a divine promotion. A humble beginning and divine promotion that goes into a gracious promise and a final warning. Those are the four things David does in this poem, in this song. He talks about his humble beginnings, moves to a divine promotion, tells us about a gracious promise, and then he gives us all a final warning in his last will and testament. Well, first, David speaks to us in verse 1 of his humble beginnings. Where do we see that? Well, look, look back at verse one again. This is the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. In William uh, Goldman's film, The Princess Bride, the dread pirate Roberts and Inigo Montoya face off in a sword fight. And as they cross blades, Montoya asks his opponent, who are you? To which the dread pirate Robert responds, no one of consequence. How does that relate to this? When you read, by the way, my name is David, the son of Jesse, you're to understand, you need to know this about me. I was known of consequence. David is about to tell you in the modern vocabulary, I am not him. I never was. I am no one of consequence. What he tells us is that he's the son of Jesse. It means that he was nobody important. That Jesse, David's father, we know, was from Bethlehem. Now, few people outside of Greenville probably know where about Pickens, 
Almost no one outside of the state knows about Pickens. I think I've told you this story before. I was on a ministry team riding on the highway in California. There's the Hollywood sign. Around the time road rage stories were going on, and this car speeds up and honks. And Becky says, what should I do? And I said, roll down the window, roll down the window. And this guy with sunglasses says, 65 miles an hour. I'm sure it was no faster than that. As we're going down the highway and says, hi, I'm from Pickens, Bob Jones, rock on. And then he just went, he just went right on. I, I know maybe he was an angel unawares encouraging us on our journey. The point is, Pickens was Bethlehem. Nobody had heard about it. And according to Micah 5.2, Bethlehem was so small that it barely made it on the national census. It's the smallest village among all of Judah. Now, not only is David from the smallest village, a city too small to make the census, but it's, he's also the smallest in his family, too small to be seen as a leader. No big league scout knew where where Bethlehem was. And when they finally found Bethlehem, nobody made a beeline to watch David. When God sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse's home in this little Bethlehem to look for the next king, everybody overlooked David, 1 Samuel 16. Notice David's humble beginnings. I'm David, the son of Jesse. Who is that? That's right. David's from an obscure village, from an obscure family, living as the least in his family. I'm no one of consequence. And my last will of testament, I want you to remember my humble beginnings. I was the son of Jesse. But not only his humble beginnings, notice his providential beginnings. You see, there was an ancient promise from Genesis 49.10 that the scepter, the symbol of a king, would come from Judah. Well, being from Bethlehem, a town in Judah, this lowly David is about to fulfill an ancient promise that a king would come from Judah. And that's just like our great God. He takes the humble of the world and he makes them mighty. He takes the weak things of the world, things overlooked by the world. Someone like a lowly David from a backwoods town like Bethlehem and he lifts them up to be king. That's the God of grace. This is the story of Samuel, the God who works through human weakness. It leads us to the next series of things that David tells us. We go now from his humble beginning to a divine promotion. Where do we see that? He was a man who was raised on high. He was anointed by the God of Jacob, and he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. Let's think of each one of those phrases that show us his divine promotion. David uses the passive voice here. I am the man who was raised on high. Now, generally, editors and English teachers tell you you avoid the passive voice because it lacks clarity. It obscures who the main actor is. But David intentionally does it using what's known as a divine passive. He's inviting you to make the connection. When David says, I'm a man who was raised up on high from the the son of Jesse, we're supposed to ask, well, who was it that raised David on high? That's right. God raised David on high. You need to know I'm a son of Jesse who was the product of a divine promotion. My life was raised on high by the most high God. 
My life moved from the lowly pasture land in Bethlehem to the heights of the palace in Jerusalem. Why? Because God raised me on high. I didn't become king by hard work, by networking and attending business after hour meetings and how to be a king. I was nothing in myself. Indeed, coming out of the dark days of Judges, God raised me up, a son of Jesse, to be lamp for all of Israel. And God not only raised me up, he tells us he anointed me. Now, at this time, at this point in our story in Samuel, that word anointed shouldn't be strange to us. In fact, it should be one of those popcorn words that jumps off the page, that, that does these cool italic things, or it's hyperlinked, or something like that. It stands out. Hannah's the first person to use this word anointed in 1 Samuel 2.10 when she says, the Lord will give power to his king. Hey, Hannah, did you know there's no king around? I I don't know what to tell you, but I know a king's coming and the Lord will give power to his king, to his anointed. She's the first one who uses it. She's the first one who sees that an anointed is coming. And what does anointed mean? It's the word Messiah in the Old Testament or the name Christ in the New Testament. So David remembers how God took him from the lowly lands of the pasture to the heights of the palace. He took me from being a shepherd of sheep and he raised me up and he made me his anointed. He made me, the son of Jesse, a Messiah. He made me the anointed king, the Messiah king, the Christ king, me from lowly Bethlehem. Are you starting to see where the story is going? Well... My story says, David, it moves from unremarkable beginnings to a messianic destiny. I want you to remember my humble beginnings and this divine promotion of one so lowly born in a town nobody had heard of before. And then David tells us that God anointed him not only to be a king, but you can miss this, but don't. But he says he's anointed me to be a prophet. Now, where do we get that, that he's a prophet? At the end of verse 1, David refers to himself as, do you see at the end of verse 1, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we have a collection of five books in the middle of our Bible known as what? Known as the Psalms. David wrote over half of the Psalms, so much so that most writers refer to the the book of the Psalter as this is the Psalms of David. When when Charles Spurgeon wrote his three-volume commentary on every psalm, he didn't call it a commentary on the Psalms. He entitled his three-volume set on the Psalter, The Treasury of David. This is a sweet psalmist of Israel. David was a mighty warrior. He was also a skilled poet and a deft musician. He could wield a sword with one hand, sheathe it, and then write a sonnet with the other hand. Before there was a renaissance, or we knew what it was, David was a renaissance man. He was a warrior and he was a poet. But David's role as the sweet psalmist of Israel was more than he was a renowned singer-songwriter. David is a prophet. How do we know that? Well, what word, if you look in verse 1 again, appears twice to describe what David's doing? It's the word oracle. The oracle of David, the oracle of the man. Now, you can watch any film, and when you hear the word oracle, everybody in the film goes, let's stop and listen. This must be important. That's right. This oracle is a, it's a prophecy. David is giving us a prophecy. It's a technical word for a divine prophecy. So we know David is acting like a prophet because he does what prophets do. He gives an oracle. He gives an oracle. But not only that, look how, look how David describes how God used him in verse 2. This is how God used me. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, and his word is on my tongue. In one small sentence, 
we have the process of divine inspiration that leads to us having a Bible that's without error. The Spirit of the Lord speaks. That's divine inspiration. That's God breathing out His Word. And a God without error can only breathe out a word that's without error. But the Spirit of the Lord, divine inspiration, He spoke by me. That's human agency. His word, divine, inerrant, inspiration, was on my tongue, human agency. Thus, Peter could write later, thinking of a verse like this, that the Bible is not a result of human origin. It wasn't a result of people sitting around thinking, how can we make up something that, that compares to the, to the epic of Gilgamesh or the like? No, 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 no. Here's what happened. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. That's what David says here. The origin of inspiration, the Spirit of the Lord spoke, and the process of inspiration, men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. Both of those things guarantee that the Bible is perfect, that it's without error in everything that it speaks to or about. The Bible is not only without error when it speaks to salvation, but to our sanctification. When the Bible speaks about the nature of man and the problem of sin and how we change and grow, the Bible is speaking perfect truth from a perfect God. I say that, beloved, and I take a moment because there are a growing number of writers, Christian writers, in the last few years who've recently published kind of best-selling kinds of books that make the rounds in book clubs and social media who are actually undermining the doctrine of inerrancy and inspiration in the name of showing you what inspiration really only applies to. Don't be deceived. There will those who will say that the Bible is without error when it comes to teaching doctrine. When it tells you how to get right with God, it's without error. But when it comes to matters of science or finances or counseling or the like, the Bible's not inspired and you're using the Bible in a way it wasn't supposed to be meant, we're told. That's a high view of inspiration, don't you see? Don't you see how that's a high view of inspiration? It's treating the Bible rightly, we're told. But B.B. Warfield of Princeton University said that's not a high view of the Bible at all. It's a low view because Warfield argued that if the Bible is without error when it comes to its doctrine and inerrancy is one of its doctrines, then the Bible is inerrant in all that it speaks to, including science and counseling and finances and so on. You can't say the Bible's inspired when it comes to doctrine but nothing else because inerrancy is one of its doctrines. That was Warfield's point. I'm just saying that be careful. Be careful of wolves in sheep's clothing that are best-selling books and Christian podcasts that minimize the authority and sufficiency of the Bible while using the Bible to undermine its own sufficiency and authority. Well, the contextual heart of verse 2 is David is not only showing us the process of divine inspiration resulting in a Bible that's perfect and without error, David is, is most importantly reminding us, or equally importantly, that he served as a prophet. That is, and taking time to say, Oracle, sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of God spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. David is telling you, you need to know, I was not only anointed by God as king, I was anointed by God as a prophet through whom God gave his word. See Acts chapter 2. What a gift of grace David was from the God of all grace. That the perfect God gave his imperfect people his perfect word 
to the lowly David, both king and prophet. This then is the humble beginnings that have led to a divine promotion of David. And he wants us to know in his last will and testament that when you reflect, when you go back and read, sometimes you see the end of the story, you know, you see the end of the sixth sense, and maybe you never want to unsee it because now you can't watch it again, but you see the end of M. Light Shahamalamalamalamalaman's movie at the end of the sixth sense, and then you go back and watch it, and you see everything differently. David says, would you listen to me sing in chapter 22 and 23? And then I want you to go back and read all of Samuel. And what you're supposed to see is God is the hero of everything in my life and Israel's life. He raised me up from my humble beginnings. He anointed me as king and his prophet. I am nobody in myself. I am nobody of consequence. And I'm not just humbly saying for you to say, oh, David, tell us how great you tell me. No, 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 I'm nobody. This is what God did for his people through me. The only thing that David brought to God is the same thing that you bring to God, and that is your sin. It's the only thing he brought to God. All we bring to God is our sin. But David's life story, Samuel's, I mean, Israel's life story, your story too is not finally a story about your sin. It doesn't have to be. Because through David, an anointed king, an anointed prophet, God saved Israel. He delivered his people from all their enemies through his anointed king and prophet from humble beginnings to divine promotion and deliverance. Now, before we we look next at the gracious promise and the final warning, do you see a pattern? Does David's life story, moving from humble beginnings to divine promotion, remind you of anybody? Do you know of another king who was raised from obscurity in a little town of Bethlehem in an unknown family, and he was raised up to be God's Messiah king, the prophet of the people? Do you know another king like that? Indeed, as we've seen throughout Samuel, the life experiences of David and his, his experiences, his triumphs and his trials are showing us. They're a preview. They're a commercial. They're a trailer for the, an advertisement for the son of David to come. Every year at Christmas, we sing around the world, O little town of Bethlehem. And from that obscure little town of Bethlehem, there comes an obscure little boy born to a, born to a family that almost divorced from the, from the sudden news that comes into it. And from that lowly couple in a lowly town in Bethlehem comes a lowly boy named Jesus who just so happens to be the son of David. And God raises him up. And did you know when that baby was born, his baby pictures were unremarkable. He wasn't ugly, but he wasn't on Olin Mills. How do we know? There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance that would attract us to him, Isaiah 53. But God raised up Jesus from such an obscure beginning and at his baptism publicly identified him, anointed him as both king and prophet. You see, these humble beginnings and divine promotion of David were a picture prophecy of the life of Jesus Christ, David's greater son to come. The story of Samuel, when you go back and read it, it wasn't about God raising up David It was about him getting ready to raise up Jesus, the son of David. That's what my last will and testament is all about. And David is telling us that. And you're going to see in a moment, he knew more than we give him credit for. His hope was in God's king, just like our only hope is in God's king. David was aware at some level 
We know that because David not only sings of humble beginnings and divine promotion, but now he sings in verses 3 to 5 of a gracious promise. Gracious promise. At the end of verse 3 and running through verse 4, we have a lovely description of godly authority, of a prophetic preview of God's king and prophet. Would you look at it again? The end of verse 3, when one rules, here's the oracle, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. I'm not sure how you capture that on canvas. It's a beautiful description that calms the soul and invites your praise at the same time. In American culture, we're suspicious of authority. We always have been. Ask King George III. Authority can be misused, but so, but but then again, certain ways of that people use to hold power account can be misused too. The French Revolution never stopped revolting until everyone was being beheaded, as the oppressed soon turned into the oppressing class, and on and on it went. But friends, while authority can be misused, authority is not intrinsically evil. Power and structures of power, contrary to critical theory, power structures, power is not automatically evil. Not only does such a theory redefine sin, but it fails to see finally the ultimate goodness of God's authority. Indeed, here we have a picture exalting the beauty and the blessing of godly authority rightly used, that that authority is not to be torn down, but to be praised and prayed for. What kind of authority? I'm talking about the authority that rules justly over men, righteously over men. I'm talking about an authority that rules in the fear of God. And when that king rules justly over men and in the fear of God, there's a result. You know what the result is? It's like, it's like the dawning of the light in the morning. Like the sun shining on a cloudless morning, like the rain that comes down, and then a few days later your grass turns green again. That's what authority is like. It's beautiful. It's refreshing. It's captivating. It's invigorating. I'm not sure again that any painting can do justice to that, though go for it. Such a ruler, says Joyce Bolden, is to be compared to three lovely experiences common to mankind everywhere. The early morning when the light dawns, the warmth of the sun on a cloudless morning, and rain that enables the grass to sprout after a drought. What a gift. What a gift authority is. What a gift David the king was to his people. We're told as David settled in Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 8, that as David settled into his reign, we read this, and he reigned over all Israel, and he did what was right for all his people, 2 Samuel 8, 15. What's happening? Well, as the book of Samuel is ending, we're having a poetic reminder of how David, as God's anointed prophet and king, ruled as an idealized king. He ruled justly. He ruled in the fear of God, like the morning sunrise, like a clear blue sky, like the refreshment of rain on parched grass. But that kind of king was finally brought about by the gracious promise of God. That's verse 5. David knows that this is only true of him in any way because God's gracious promise to him, a promise that David refers to, I want you to see in verse 5, here's the phrase, as an everlasting covenant. 
we're not only seeing a gracious promise, but an eternal promise. Now, on one level, David's words here in verse 5 are a one-verse summary of 2 Samuel 7. As we began our service this morning, we opened up, and there in the inside panel, we were to think quietly but together of 2 Samuel 7. It's one of the key chapters in Samuel and in all the Bible. Because there in that chapter, God promised that he was going to build not a house for David, but a household, that God would build a dynasty for David that would last forever. And not only that, God promised, like with the covenant with Abraham, that God was going to bless all the nations of the earth through a king, somebody coming after David in his line. So David reflects on God's amazing grace to him. And he says in 2 Samuel 7, 18, as we read, looked at this morning, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you brought me safe thus far? That's David saying, I was a son of Jesse, a man who was raised up. And who am I that God has brought me safe thus far? But then David continues, but taking me from the pasture to the palace, that wasn't a small thing for you in your eyes. That would have been enough. If I would have had a rags to riches story by your grace in a sense, that would have been enough. But for you, God, that was a small thing that you did. What you were doing was this. You were making me a king and through me, a king would come who would save the world. You've spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is your instruction. This is how you're going to deal with all of mankind. The Lord declared to you, David, that he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and when you're pushing up daisies with the rest of your fathers, I'm going to raise up offspring after you who will come from your body. And I will establish one of your offspring forever and his kingdom will never end. And David says, God made that type of gracious promise, an eternal promise with me. And that promise with me would one day bless the world through one of my descendants. And as he reflects on the end of his life and he leaves his last will and testament and we come to the end of the story of Samuel, he wants you to know that God's gracious promise to David is responsible for everything that's happened to David. And that through David, God would raise up a prophet and king. And make a gracious promise, an everlasting promise that would bless everyone who would ever believe in this son of David. And then we're told, David says, and God, you ordered. That's the next line. You ordered, you arranged every one of these steps. We read that from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. There's no part of our life too, but particularly David's life, because you see David is being raised up as the picture preview of the savior of the world. And nothing was left to chance. You remember that old hymn, my father planned it all. Some of you do. What though the way be lonely and dark, the shadows fall. I know where'er it leadeth. My father planned it all. David says, that's my story. My life, Israel, My father planned it all, and I'm going to sing because I can't be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I will glory in my Redeemer. You see, God had made a gracious promise, an eternal promise to me, and the story of God's people is the story of God's power and his faithfulness to keep his promises of grace to sinning people forever. Would you look again at the beginning of five? I want to bring out the graciousness of this gracious promise I want you to see, go back and see the flow of what's happening here. And you go on a thought exercise with me. In verses 3 and 4, he describes that beautiful ideal reign of a king. And then in verse 5, the ESV says, 
For does not my house stand so with God? Now, what he means is, and the flow of the logic is, hasn't my household, hasn't my reign as a king, verse 5, been the ideal reign that's just described in verse 4? Do you see that? Verses 3 and 4 state the ideal picture of God's king. And the verse 5 says, and hasn't my rule been just like that? But you know, there's another way to translate verse 5. The Hebrew text runs something like this. Here's my broken attempt to do some. It's wooden and it's literal. The Hebrew text says this, for not so my house with God. Well, great day. How do they get all these translations from it? Well, if it's accurate, what David describes when he describes an ideal king in verses three and four, who this is the oracle. God wants his king to rule justly in the fear of God and to be like the light of dawn. Then, then the very next verse literally reads for Not so, my house with God. If that's true, David is saying, but my house and my rule were not like what I just described a king should be. Indeed, the King James Bible, the longest running English translation that we have, translates verse 5 like this. Instead of saying, for does not my house stand so with God, as the ESV has, the King James says, although my house is not so with God, Yet has he made with me an everlasting covenant. Now, I'm not sure exactly which translation is correct because both of them are supplying some words a bit. But doesn't the more literal translation, if we just go with this, for not so my house with God, doesn't that follow more naturally for the context of David's life? I mean, after describing the ideal way a king was supposed to reign in verses 3 and 4, did David actually end his life reigning in that way? Well, great, good night, nurse. Not since chapter 11 he hasn't. It seems like the old King James translation follows the context, at least, of David's life more accurately. That is, while David was a blessing, undeniably so, he was a blessing to Israel in part, He did reign as a just and righteous king. And he did reign better than every other king that would follow him. Yet he did not reign perfectly. Thus, what stuns us at the end of David's life, what should stun us at the end of David's life is this. It's the scandal of God's grace to somebody like David. You've ever been scandalized by grace? You you mean if, if if the thief on the cross repents at the end of his life, that God would save him for everything he did? That's the scandal of grace, that God forgives the worst sinners that we think should be canceled and locked in societal purgatory until the day they die, and maybe afterwards we'll say something nice about it. This is the scandal of God's grace. After all, God is an omniscient God. After all that God knew David would do, he still made the promise with him in 2 Samuel 7. After all David did do, God still kept that everlasting promise of grace to him. Do you, I did as I was looking at this, do you feel the grip now of God's sovereign, undeserving, unearned, unmerited grace wrapping itself around David and his kingdom as David says, I'm about to die. Here's my last will and testament. When you open it, you need to know, although my house wasn't like that, he made an everlasting covenant with me. John Newton, can we sing Amazing Grace? This is the graciousness of an eternal covenant with David who knew what he was like. 
That's the drumbeat of David's last will and testament. The only thing that explains my life, the only thing that explains Israel's history, when you look over our great sins, and I as a king just, just modeled the sins of the people, is the presence of our great Savior. Here's the point. David did the sinning in Israel, and God did the saving in Israel. That's sovereign grace. That's saving grace. And David knows that the promise of that kind of king who would come through his line was his only hope because in verse 5 where it says, he's all my hope, you could also translate it, he is all my salvation. I told you in chapter 22, the Lord's my deliverer. What I mean is he's my salvation through this everlasting promise. We sang, you know, John Newton's song today is most famous. You know, I mean, just remind yourself, Newton had been a horrible slave trader early in his life. We have this expression, you know, they cuss like a sailor. Newton writes in his own autobiography, I was so profane in my speech that I made up cuss words. By his own testimony, as we sung this morning, Newton says, here's my life in a word, wretch. But Newton, like King David before him, had put his hope in God's Messiah. And in his biography, near the end of his life, William J., his friend, visited Newton, and at that point, Newton was barely able to speak. But Newton said, summoning his strength, my memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. When William Carey, that great missionary to India, came to the end of his life and people surrounded him and they were starting to say nice things and amazing things about what Carey had endured as a missionary, William Carey said, speak no more of Dr. Carey, but only of Dr. Carey's Savior. That's David at the end of his life. Go back and read Samuel. Go back and read the Bible. It's about God giving us Jesus. Not about you building a business and getting over this and getting over that. It's about God saving you from your worst enemy, your sin, yourself. And he graciously does it. You know, in time, David's going to close his eyes and breathe his last. You can read that in Psalm 72. His crown would roll into the dust, and then David's body would soon join the dust. And long afterwards, the promises for this everlasting king and this kingdom that would never end, well, they all seem to die with you, David. But then a prophet named Ezekiel picks a pen up and he writes once more that God is going to establish a shepherd for his people, a shepherd called, quote, my servant David. And my servant David will shepherd my people. And my servant David will be a prince to my people, Ezekiel 34. Now, somebody probably walked up to Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel, I know God's made you do some weird things. You've had to eat cow dung. You've had to walk around with only your underwear on. I know you've done weird things. Have you lost your ever-loving mind? David's dead. How are you still talking about God's going to make his servant David to rule as a prince? How can Ezekiel speak of a servant David ruling when David's been dead, Ezekiel? And then Jeremiah says, well, if you think Ezekiel's crazy, I'm crazy too. Because I want to tell you in Jeremiah 30 of a day coming when God's people would serve, quote, David their king, whom I will raise up. Well, how can it be that Jeremiah can speak of people serving David their king long after David's bones have turned to dust? Because Jeremiah and Ezekiel wrote of someone to come. They knew what David knew. What did they know? That 2 Samuel 23 was never about David that God had made an everlasting promise that through David, 
his offspring would come who would actually, his kingdom would last forever. That is, the promise of Jeremiah and Ezekiel were about a greater David to come. And David's hope as he died was his salvation, was in that greater king in his line to come. So the Old Testament closes. And then there's silence for about 400 years. And then something breaks the silence. Listen to the opening line of the New Testament after roughly 400 years of silence. Here's the first word you get after 400 years of nothing from God. An account the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Now you thought I forgot, didn't you? I mean, that's what God says. You thought I forgot. And then the angel Gabriel goes to Mary, who's stunned with the announcement. And the Gabriel says, now that, that boy in your room, in your womb, he will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary's saying, are you kidding me? No wonder she was troubled. How can this be? Beloved, Jesus Christ is the son of David who fulfills every part of this promise to David and his last will and testament. Jesus, too, came from humble origins in Bethlehem. And God raised him up to be the king and the prophet. But unlike, but unlike, now I don't know, I don't know how many, I don't know how many, but unlike his great, 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 and so on grandfather, unlike, unlike Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather, Jesus, the son of David, never failed as David did. Indeed, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And he will reign forevermore. And as Jesus reigns, his reign, now here comes the oracle. Now I know why you said this is an oracle, David. Because one day someone's coming through you and his rule will be compared to the sun shining forth on a cloudless day like the rain that makes the grass to grow. I'm talking about my son of David, not me. But before that, Jesus had to fulfill the negative aspects of the promises to David. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 7? The covenant was, if any of my descend, if any of your descendants sin, I will chastise them severely, but I won't remove my steadfast love for them. Well, now listen, now follow. If you commit iniquity, I will punish you. Well, by virtue of Christ's union with his people, he takes on their sins which means David's sins were imputed to Christ and yours were too if you believe in him. Which means that if you know him, that Jesus, the son of David, was finally punished for the sins of David, for David's sins were imputed to Christ. He was finally punished for the sins of David, for David's sins were laid on Christ and Christ was punished for David's sins. So that Isaiah could say, I'm, I'm looking ahead for a servant and by his stripes we are healed. Here's a servant who will bear the sins of many and intercede for rebels. Thus, Jesus Christ, the son of David, fulfills the Davidic covenant in every aspect. He's in every way qualified to be a suitable, compassionate, all-sufficient savior because he's fulfilled everything that David was supposed to be that wasn't and David was never supposed to be in any way. And he's fulfilled it not just for David, but for all people like you and me who will put their trust in Jesus, the son of David. And then the passage ends with a warning. Did you see verses 6 to 7? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. You can't take hold of them with your hand. 
But the man who touches those thorns has to arm himself with an iron, you know, some kind of iron rake and a shaft of the spear, and you just, you just kind of push those thorns into a brush pile and you light it on fire. Now, in the context of the story of Samuel, worthless men in this context are those kinds of men who've come before, like Goliath and the other four giants at the end of chapter 21. Worthless men also include Eli's sons, as well as David's own sons of Absalom and Amnon. And then there's Sheba, and then there's Ahithophel, and most likely even Saul. And the common denominator of all the worthless men in the story of Samuel is this. They were all men who opposed God's king. They opposed God's king, his word, and his promise. And when those men then became like thorns, to grab them led to a puncture wound. Anybody who was around Absalom or Ahithophel or Amnon or Eli's sons or those giants died. To be around them was like trying to grab hold of a thorny bush. You only received a puncture wound. And in the end, those kind of worthless men are like a pile of thorns. The only thing they're good for is to set on fire. And then as now, all those who reject God's king are worthless people like thorns fit only for the brush pile. So as David's last will and testament comes to a close, we find out that the great thing anyone can say about us is not a resume virtue, but a eulogy virtue. And particularly what matters most is not what you've done, but who you are in Christ. Remember two things. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That's David's last will and testament. Now, is it yours? Look away to Jesus, his final king, and you will be saved. David's last will and testament tells you, but if you reject God's king and your resume virtues, and that's where you place your hope, then your resume virtues will, be, will become dried thorns to start the flames of hell around you when you're thrown into it. This is God's king. Do you know him? Do you know how much he did to show you that he loved you? He's greater than the next level in a video game. He's better than a promotion. He's more satisfying than I don't know. I love, he's more satisfying than carrot cake. He's more fulfilling than, than hitting a home run in the bottom of the ninth. Jesus is better than it all. There's no one like him. Kings of the world will ask you to die for them to get them a treasure. Jesus is the only king of the world who died for you to make you his treasure. An everlasting covenant. Do you know what it is to be loved by Jesus Christ, the son of David? Yet David's Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.